You're listening to the Eastside Church Sermon Podcast Series. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, inclusive, and justice-oriented. We are thrilled that you found our podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about our community, visit our website at eastsideatl.org. Now I get the honor of welcoming Reverend Richard Hunter up to the stage. Um, He is our Associate Director of the Center of Congregational Excellence for the United Methodist Church. Um, And he is going to be sharing a word with you. You may all sit down. Karina's giving me the sit down motion. Um, So let's all give a warm welcome to Reverend Richard Hunter. Thank you, Andrew. I'm gonna let you keep that. There we go. All right. Good morning, Eastside. If you'll pray for me, uh, the last time that I spoke from this area up here was about 1986. And uh, who remembers this space before the transformation? One or two of you there. Uh, It was very traditional. Still had a traditional choir loft here. And um, that day was a funeral service. And the plates was packed. I was the pastor out in Oxford, Georgia. And one of our members had grown up in this church. And um, often he and his wife talked about growing up in this community when East Atlanta was first being populated with new people coming to Atlanta. And it was hard for me to imagine because I was a student at Emory University before I went to Oxford. And this community was rapidly changing. And uh, this particular family, when the patriarch of the family died, wanted to come back to what was then Martha Brown United Methodist Church and hold a service. And I remember standing up here, well, no, I wasn't standing at the time, I was seated somewhere around here thinking, this church needs a rebirth. What's that? Yes. Yes, and it took a long time for the rebirth to occur. And I was one of the people that just rejoiced so much when this church began to reach out into the community once again. And I love the phrase, see all the people. Because often I would talk to the Everett's, that was the name of this family, and they said, it got so we couldn't see our neighbors. And they weren't talking about physical sight. They were talking about spiritual sight, that when new people came in, it was difficult to relate to them and understand them, and there was prejudices and political feelings that got in the way, and the answer in the 1970s was just to leave the community. And that broke my heart. Now, I loved Gene Everett. And I was honored that his family asked me to come and speak at that funeral that day. But I remember over and over praying, Lord God, we need a rebirth of Jesus people on the east side of Atlanta. So I want to thank this congregation for seeing the community, seeing all of the people and doing literally this. We're able to do that because of 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice the picture here in this stained glass window. That's the purpose of stained glass. Many, many years ago in the Middle Ages, when the majority of the people were illiterate as far as able to read, that was the purpose of stained glass. It was not put in churches just for beauty or just to inspire. And I really don't think the, the original purpose of stained glass was to memorialize human beings. I think it was to teach about who God really is. And I love that picture. That, that picture was in the church I grew up in. Jesus saying, come unto me, all of ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't know of a single picture in all of my life of Jesus where it's like this. The Jesus I worship and adore is like this, the good shepherd. And notice the scripture we just heard where the good shepherd opens the gate and through Jesus Christ, we can have new life. That's how communities have new life. I've seen it over and over. When the people of God see the community, all of the people, and they realize that all of us are broken, all of us need God's love, all of us are hungry sometime. I love the words that you said about the offering. Dear Lord, help us to see that there's enough there's really more than enough when we have a generous heart. I'd been a pastor 32 years in the Atlanta area, serving all the way around the city. And at the end of 32 years, my parents were living in Birmingham and they were in assisted living. And I needed to be close to them. So I talked to the bishop in North Alabama and I asked for an appointment to a church I could serve in North Alabama and be close to my parents to care for them on a daily or weekly basis, whatever they needed. And the bishop in North Alabama invited me to come to that conference and I directed the, their office of new church development for several years. And then in 2021, it was time for me to come home. My son was living here in East Atlanta within walking distance of this church my wife's family lived in North Georgia. We were eager to be close to them once again. I'd lived so long in this area that this is where our friends were. These were the people we had raised our children with. These were the people that knew the names of my grandchildren. So I was eager to come back to the Atlanta area. And if you remember the housing situation, and it's still really tight, in March of 2021 is when this occurred. The tightening of the housing market. Now the interest rates were dropping, but to find a house in Metro Atlanta that you didn't have to enter a bidding war was almost impossible. So my wife and I came over here on a Friday and our real estate agent was a longtime friend of ours and we started looking at houses. We found several houses that would fit our budget and we were excited about them. The first one was bidding way over the price and so we said, we're not gonna do that. The second one was not even a, really a house like we were used to. It was a townhouse, and it was nice, but it wouldn't be a place when our grandchildren came, they could play in the yard. So we were hesitant about that one. Before we could really make up our mind, we heard that the bids were then 24,000 above asking price. We had looked at dozens of houses. We drove back to Birmingham where we were living 
And my wife was just despondent about it. She said, you know, we have to move over there. Your job starts July 1st. What are we going to do? And literally, I didn't know the answer. We both started praying. And uh, our daughter said, you know, D.R. Horton built our home. Maybe there's a D.R. Horton home in Atlanta. D.R. Horton was building seven different subdivisions around Atlanta. So my wife began to look on the website. Surely there's a home in our price range. Because we were looking for a home. At, we would be happy with a small home, as long as we could afford it. And there was not a single house available in our price range except in a place called Douglasville, Georgia. Douglasville, Georgia. Well, we had always lived on the north side or the east side of Atlanta. We didn't know much about Douglasville. All I remember that when I lived in Atlanta going to Emory University in the 1980s was Douglas County was mainly a farming community. But Douglasville had changed tremendously. And when my wife called the agent of that one subdivision that had one house available. He began to describe the neighborhood and it sounded good for us. And he said, but you won't want this house. It's a small house. And my wife said, oh, that's what we're looking for. We're empty nesters. This is probably in our budget. And when the guy told us the price, it was within our budget. And so my wife said, we'll, we'll drive over the next day and see the house. We're excited about it. And he said, Mrs. Hunter, I'm telling you the truth. You can come tomorrow and you may be able to see it, but it'll probably sell today. We have 64 families on our waiting list. And so she said, what should I do? We can't get over there today. He says, well, we've been showing houses virtual, but you know, during the quarantine. So I can send you a video and you can walk through this house. And when my wife told me that, I said, a video? We're about to make this huge purchase with a 30-year mortgage and they want us to walk through a video and make a decision? And she said, okay, grow up and realize that's the way life is now. So the video came. We walked through the house. We liked it. We talked to our daughter who had a D.R. Horton home. And I did something I'd never done in all my life. I've bought five houses. I bought a house sight unseen. Well, my daughter understood it. She was happy for us. My wife called our son, who's a mental health therapist, and when she told him, he said, y'all have lost your mind. <laughs> and we tried to talk to him about it, you know, that we, we trust D.R. Horton, we like the community. House looks good, you know, and it, the way I ended the conversation, I said, son, you know, I've got about 30-something years on you, and I think I've made a good decision. And he said, well, sure, Dad. And he hung up, and you know what he did? He called his sister and he said, what has happened to mom and dad? They have literally lost their minds. So as the house was getting built, little did we know that Jimmy and his wife were building the house next door. Jimmy's a fireman here in Atlanta. His wife uh, is a cosmic, I can't even say the word. In other words, she, takes, she does appointments with women who want to improve their makeup. What is the word? Somebody. Yeah, you've got it right. There you go. And so they were building a house next door and their home was about two weeks ahead of ours. And every time Jimmy came out there, he thought about who is building this home next door to us. He began to watch over the house for us. And little did we know, we didn't even aware of this. He would step in and 
tell them when something wouldn't go right or he made sure that the landscaping got finished on my house and I hadn't even met Jimmy yet. Well, finally it came time for us to do the closing of the house. We started to move in and I met my neighbor, Jimmy. Now we knew when we signed that contract that we were going to be the minority in that community. That's the demographic makeup of that part of Douglasville. We had been told about the community that was people from all over the world and it was majority African-American. You see, I grew up in a community in Birmingham where my parents wouldn't have bought a home in a neighborhood if they knew it was majority African-American. But that's one of the many reasons that I love Atlanta is because you can make an intentional choice to live in a multicultural, multiracial, diverse community with all different education levels. And if you really try hard, you can even find a community with a diversity of political beliefs. So we were going to Douglasville and I drive up and for the first time I see Jimmy. And what Richard saw was an African-American man who was moving into a house next door. Little did I know what he had been thinking about me before I got there. And Jimmy was the first person to rush up and meet us. And he said, I've been waiting for you to move in. And I said, oh, did you know we were coming? No, I was just waiting for our neighbors to meet them. And I've been watching over your house. And uh, several things I caught that I was able to get them to correct before you ever came to see the house. And Jimmy invited us to the family reunion they were doing for the blessing of their house. Their closing ended up being about two weeks after ours. And we got this invitation to go to Jimmy and Claudette's house for their family reunion. And I walk in and everybody is like this. We are so glad to meet you. Jimmy's been saying, talking about you, his new neighbor and your wife, Mary. We're so glad you're here. And we've lived there now almost two years. And Jimmy's that same kind of guy. Yesterday, FedEx delivered a coffee order we had. And we get a message on our phone. The coffee's been delivered. And here's the picture of it. My wife looked at the picture and she says, well, that's not our front porch. That could be our coffee. Richard, would you go out next door and ask Jimmy if he's seen it? And I went next door and Jimmy said, oh yeah, that was delivered to the house down the street and they came looking for you and we have it for you. See all the people. See one another as children of God. See one another as broken and in need of forgiveness. See one another. See them to their souls. Tavares has been preaching to you from the book of Acts and it's the acts of the Holy Spirit more than the acts of the apostles. Because literally the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they're running to keep up with the Holy Spirit who says, yes, start in Jerusalem, but take the good news of God's love then into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And yes, he said Samaria, the arch enemies of the Jewish people. The people who worship God different than you do. That's what the Holy Spirit was saying. 
So literally, the apostles, the disciples, the followers, they had to run to keep up with the Holy Spirit. And as you read chapters one and two, you'll also hear cynics and doubters. And Jesus saying, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus saying, love your neighbor as I have loved you. See all the people. So today we're in Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47. And before we show you the words of this, these scriptures, let me tell you another story. When I was a child, I worshiped in a beautiful church in Birmingham that was similar to this, had beautiful stained glass, had a choir that could sing on pitch. It was really good. It was a church that always had plenty of parking, a church that had good snacks in the nursery for children, a church that had a basketball league on the third floor of the old Sunday school building built in the 1920s. So when I came to Atlanta to go to seminary, in many ways, my definition of church was about building. It was about programs. It was about beauty. A church was a place that everybody sang on pitch and knew all the songs. And God shook me up. And I learned that church was not about a building. It's not about a steeple. The church is about people. Maybe you've heard that song. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is the people. See, I'm not the only person in the room that's old or had parents that were old and taught, taught them that song. So I really like Acts chapter two because to me it's the definition of church. And I've gotten to the point, I don't like people saying, I'll meet you at the church because then I'm looking for people when that person's talking about a geographic location. I really don't agree with you when you say this is the church. This is a building. It's beautiful. It has great potential. It can hold a lot of people. It has good acoustics. I probably don't even need this microphone. But it's not the church. The church is the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. The church is those who are seeking to follow Jesus with his kind of compassion and generosity and acceptance and inclusion and welcome. That's the church. So now we get to look at the scripture, verses 42 to 47. And this is from the Common English Bible. It's one of our most modern translations. The believers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All of the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. That's the definition of church. I remember going to a church camp and someone reading this and all of a sudden, I got excited about church. 
I was probably 16 years old at the time. And I was, I was getting to that point. I was really tired of my parents requiring me to go to Sunday school and worship. If I played on the basketball team, it had to be at the church basketball league. If I sung in a choir, it had to be in one of the church choirs. And what I saw was our community in Birmingham was rapidly changing, getting poorer. And yet our church stayed exactly the same. We all looked alike. We were basically middle class. And by the time I was 16 years of age, we did not look like our community. And I didn't feel like my church, my family of faith, really loved the community. Oh, we probably said we did, but we really didn't. And that was convicting. And I remember going to camp that weekend and thinking, I'm not sure I want to be a part of a church because you see, I had a skewed definition of the church. When we think of church as place, as windows, with particular programs and people who think and act like we do, we've taken Jesus' arms and done what? Yeah, exactly. We've done this. And you know, when you meet somebody, if they come up to you, to meet you and they say, hello, my name's Richard. I'm so glad to see you. How does that make you feel? Makes you feel like they're afraid of you or they're so unhappy that their defenses have taken over. Definition of church. It's right here. Their life together was the apostles' teaching They lived in and among the community. They tried their best to see people, to get to know them, and then they wanted to tell them about Jesus because Jesus had changed their life. Jesus had taught them what grace really means. Jesus had opened doors for them. Jesus had helped them see one another as real people. You probably, like myself, remember during the quarantine, That is, life shut down, the essential workers became more and more obvious and valued among us. You know, the people that I rarely saw until that time were the people who delivered packages to my home. I was busy. Most of the time I wasn't at home, and so something would be delivered, and I'd get home, and it was on the porch, and I was happy. If it wasn't, I was unhappy, and I called, and I complained. But then the quarantine came. And I was utterly dependent on people to deliver me groceries, clothing, water, medicine, packages of all kinds. And as they delivered to my house, I found myself wanting to hug them, but I didn't want to scare them. So instead, I thanked them. And my wife and I tried to do little things to make their day better, whether it was giving them food or offering them water or making sure the neighborhood dog that chased strangers was not out when they came. You see, we began to see them as real people with hurts and hopes and asking the question, do they have good work conditions? How much are they getting paid? Are we only paying these people a minimum wage? They deserve far more because we're dependent on them. They're valued. And you know what? I bet that woman has a family that she's taking care of. I'm not the only person 
that should be paid a fair and equitable wage. The essential workers. During the quarantine, I realized they were as important or more important than I was. See all of the people. The life together of the early church, Acts 2, they shared meals with the hungry and those who were displaced. Did you know that in the first century, if you were from a Jewish family and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, if you said, I'm a part of the way, that is the way of Jesus, you could be ostracized. And that was more than just shunning. Literally, you'd be pushed out of the house. You couldn't get a job in Jerusalem among other Jewish workers. The Romans wouldn't hire you because they didn't want to upset the Jewish people. So therefore, that first century group of people, the 5,000 that were, quote, saved and baptized on the day of Pentecost, once their family realized they were following Jesus, this radical preacher from Nazareth, they'd be written off. They became the displaced, the disinherited. And so the community of faith was sharing meals because people were hungry and they were displaced and they didn't have family. Acts 2 tells us they prayed daily. It became a holy practice for the purpose of developing a relationship to God. They didn't pray to be seen in public. They prayed because they knew how much they needed God and their prayers connected them to God through Christ. The scriptures tell us they sold and let go of properties and possessions, and then they distributed to all who had need. In other words, they demonstrated the love of God. They followed Jesus, who gave up everything for us. Acts 2 tells us that every day they came together. When I was serving a church in Sugar Hill, Georgia, just north of here, we had a Korean congregation that met in the building. And one day I had to be at the church really early. The men were having a breakfast. So I got there about 6.15 and I saw about eight cars and I thought, great, we're gonna have eight people in the kitchen to help me cook. But instead it was the Korean congregation in our chapel and those eight cars had brought about 20 people to pray that morning, and they started at 6 a.m. And so I asked one of their members, I said, oh, y'all came to pray today. Is this a special occasion? He said, no, our pastor invites us to come every day and be here by 6 a.m., and we pray nonstop until 7 o'clock for this community. And he said, Pastor Richard, we pray for you, and we pray for the staff of our church, we pray for the homeless and the hungry, and we pray for those that are being persecuted around the world. We pray for our relatives we hadn't even seen back in Korea. And I said, every day? He said, oh, every day but Sunday, and then we're, we gather as a worshiping community and pray together. And I realized to him that was common practice. They were in the habit of prayer. Well, I knew that our majority Caucasian congregation would not follow my lead if I said, I want everybody to come at 6 a.m. every day of the week and pray. So we came up with this. For 40 days, I invited everyone to stop around noontime, lunchtime, and pray for the community of Sugar Hill and Buford and Atlanta. Pray for our families. Pray for those who are hurting. Pray for those in the hospital. Pray for the, the immigrants that have come to our community, and many of them were being mistreated. Pray for one another. 
And what I was hoping was it would grow the relationship with Christ and open their eyes to others. And it did that. Because when we stop and pray a designated amount of time with other people, the Holy Spirit stirs within us and our eyes are open to what is going on around us. I want to invite this church for the next 61 days to pray. And maybe the best time is in the middle of the day because that's when the majority of us are awake. And lunchtime, let your hunger at the middle of the day remind you to pray. And you know why I chose 61 days? 61 days from today is when Elaine arrives, your new pastor. Pray for her. Pray for Tavares as he goes to the, the Swanee community to lead the Swanee Worship Center. Pray for the leaders of your church. Pray for this community that the rebirth of God's love that has been so evident here since Eastside started will continue. And that it will be rejuvenated because the people of this church are praying together and asking God to help us see all the people and all the ways that we can literally be a church, not a building, but a people, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, followers of the way. 61 days. Every time you get hungry in the middle of the day, stop and pray. Scripture tells us they shared their food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness and mercy for all people. And what was the result? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I was raised in a tradition when we heard the word saved, oh, saved from sin. In other words, not going to hell. But it's so much more. Saved from insignificance. Saved from loneliness because now we're a part of a community of faith. Saved from hopelessness because the church loves us and people really care about us. Saved from boredom because now I have a purpose in life. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What would happen if we stopped fixating on our church buildings and our material things and started seeing all the people Christ calls us to reach? A building can be an asset or a burden that sinks us. I work with a group called the Wesley Community Development Corporation. Wesley because they're Methodist. And their vision has to do with church buildings are not about money, they're about ministry. One of the churches they've worked with was called St. Matthew's United Methodist in Norcross, Georgia. The campus was built when the church had 1,200 members. And the church got as small as 60 people and many people thought, well, the only thing to do is just sell this building and use the, the money in foreign missions. Well, that could have been something good, but instead the congregation prayed about how can we use this as an asset to bless the community? The pastor and the leaders of the church reached out to the community and said, 
What is an unaddressed need right here on Jimmy Carter Boulevard in Norcross, Georgia that no one else is addressing? No other nonprofit is looking at. And they named a lot of needs. But the one that bubbled to the surface, and I believe by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was that community needed a clinic where anyone could show up and receive medical care. And so the pastor and leaders had this audacious idea. They reached out to well, Wellstar, to Piedmont, to Emory, to Quidette Medical Center, and they said, this is the need, we have a building. We will open that building and let you use it 24 seven every day of the year if you'll make it into a clinic. So they designated part of the building and the church said, we'll continue to pay the utilities, but we need for you to come in and renovate it and make it safe and warm and dry. And then you bring in the equipment and then you ask your employees to give a certain amount of time every week to run this clinic. They talked to eight different organizations and three decided to be partners. And if you go there today, one of the buildings is a 24-7 clinic. The partners provide medical staff and administrative staff to keep it running. And then those partners recruit, invite doctors and nurses and medical professionals to give a certain day or multiple days per month. And for the first time in 15 years, that community has a place for those to go who do not have health insurance, who otherwise would be begging in an emergency room. Let's keep our focus on the main thing, being the body of Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Because we want to be a people of hope, joy, and compassion. Those things are contagious, and it needs to be authentic among us. And this will lead people to Jesus, and they will desire to follow him because they see that we are people of our word, that we really want to be God's hands and feet, his eyes, his ears, and begin right where you are. Well, I could go on for another hour because I love chapter two of the book of Acts, but the bottom line is this. You are the beloved of God. God created you. And in the church of Jesus Christ, all of who you are is welcome among the people of God. And I hope that strengthens you to see all the people and to reach out and let the love of Christ flow through you. Pray for the next 61 days that east side will see Jesus like this and not like this. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Creator, the Redeemer and the Sustainer the one who loves you. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Andrew. I'm the intern here at Eastside, and I have the pleasure of leading us in our prayers of the people this morning. 
so there's going to be a few times where I will say, Lord, in your mercy, and I invite you all to respond, hear our prayer. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear God, bless Eastside. Bless our hardworking staff members as they continue to direct this church down a path towards love and justice and humility and radical inclusion. Bless Pastor T and his family and bless their new journey ahead. May it be meaningful and life-giving. Bless Reverend Elaine Puckett and her family and bless their upcoming time with us. May it be exciting and transformative. At this time in the year, uh, bless all of the recent graduates or graduates-to-be and anyone else in the middle of big transitions coming up. May they find wisdom from the past and hope for the future while never forgetting intentional presence right now. Bless this congregation who also finds itself in a time of transition again. And may we find wisdom from the past and hope for the future while never forgetting intentional presence right now. Bless all of Eastside's volunteers who keep the church alive behind the scenes. May we never tire of doing good. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. I pray that love guides all that we do, a fully realized love that is embodied and action-oriented and never hypothetical, a communal love that chases after the radical claim that Colossians introduces, in my flesh I'm completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction, that is the church an attentive love that seeks to recognize the divine in everyone and everything, even and especially our enemies. A curious love that seeks to understand and know one another, even and especially those who we disagree with. A courageous love that speaks truth to power, reminding us that even if relationship isn't always comfortable, it should always be safe a gentle love that treats our beautiful bodies with respect, awe, grace, and attention, a love that fights for our own self-worth even when we feel degraded by others, like that which theologian Dorothy Zola says of growing up in a patriarchal society, for me as a woman, pride is not really a sin but rather something I still have to learn. A boundary-setting love that understands sometimes we can love people more and best when we are not in close relationship with them. An eco-conscious love that celebrates and aims to protect the sacred interconnected life amongst all of creation. A mysterious love that even all of these definitions cannot come close to capturing. As Augustine says, if you comprehend it, it is not God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. I'm standing up here a little burnt out today. Two years of seminary has left me a bit exhausted of theological reflection and deep conversations and dredging up emotions for grades. 
maybe not for this reason specifically, but I'm sure many others in the room have felt a similar exhaustion or apathy toward God at some point in their life or even now. For those whose faith is difficult or exhausting, for those who have been hurt by church one too many times, for those who are angry at God, for those who are finding it hard to come to church right now, for those who have tried hard to seek God's presence and are still coming up short, I offer these words from Rilke. When gold is in the mountain and we've ravaged the depths till we've given up digging, it will be brought forth into day by the river that mines the silence of stones. Even when we don't desire it, God is ripening. Lord, in your mercy. I like the way author and theologian Lisa Sharon Harper frames sin. She says, sin is not about the personal imperfection of the self. Rather, sin is any act that breaks any of the relationships God declared very good in the beginning. Relationship between one another, between us and the natural world, between us and our own bodies. As we enter into a time of silent confession, may we consider if these connections and relationships are where God is, how have we broken these connections and how can we restore them? In the name of Christ, you are forgiven. Now I wanna invite everybody to stand up and welcome one another and show signs of peace amongst our congregation. When we open the book of Acts, Jesus tells his followers to wait. And I've always been a person, I'm not real comfortable waiting. I'm a hyper person, I like to get on with the task, but sometimes we need to wait. And I realize this church is in a season of waiting. So let it be a good and full time. How many days have I asked you to pray? 61. Good, 61, what time of day? Yeah, around the middle of the day when you get hungry, stop and pray for your church. That is the body of Christ here in Eastside and everywhere that God sends you. That's the good news that God is sending you, God's love works through you, and God has amazing plans for this church. I can tell, you know why? Because you love children and you don't have any problem expressing it, and that's good. We love all the children of God. So hear this benediction today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you what? give you peace, the peace of God, which passes all human understanding. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to connecting with you soon. If you'd like to experience our full church services, you can find them at youtube.com slash eastsidechurchatl. 
And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Eastside, you can find our giving portal at our website, eastsideatl.org. Be well.